Uh, if you have Bibles, go ahead and make your way to the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, the Gospel of Matthew, we're in chapter 21, verses 28 through 32. And if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles that Annie mentioned a moment ago, uh, page 826 is where you will find that. Some years back, uh, it's been at least three or four years now at this point, we were spending time hanging out with my wife's family, and her parents were talking about uh, the difference between Shay and her brother as they were growing up as young kids. Uh, like many siblings, I know many of you have siblings, like many siblings, Shay and her brother were very different from one another. And one of the ways that that surfaced in their young lives uh, came about when they were asked to clean their rooms. So they were both asked to clean their room. Uh, when, he, when he was asked, my brother-in-law... He was the oppositional one. So he would be asked to clean his room, and he would immediately say, nope, not going to do it. But then about an hour or so later, the room would end up being cleaned. He would go, and he would do it, and he would clean his room. Shay, on the other hand, was the one who was a lot more compliant, uh, at least in the sense of saying, yes, I'll go do that and clean my room. But then like a half an hour or an hour later, uh, her parents would come and check on the progress, and she would be like playing with some other kinds of toys or something in her room. And her explanation was always to, to look up at her parents and say, this was just more fun. This, was just, this seemed like more interesting to me than, than what you asked me to do. So who in that scenario is the compliant one and who is the oppositional one? All right, depending on your vantage point, you'll have a different answer. If all you hear are the initial responses in a situation like that, you'll conclude one thing. But if you actually see how it plays out to the end, if you see how, what the status of it an hour or so later, only one of those rooms is cleaned, and it would, it would not be the one that you would expect initially. Uh, as we near the end of this series that we've been in the last couple months looking at different parables taught by Jesus, uh, today we're going to hear Jesus tell a parable with a very similar idea. Uh, there are two sons, and they are sent by their father to work in a vineyard. They have two very different initial responses. And they also have two very different ending responses. So one of these sons we'll come to see here is oppositionally obedient. I'll call him the oppositionally obedient son. And the other one is the compliantly disobedient son. Jesus teaches this parable um, during the last week of his life leading up to his death on the cross. And during this last week, the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders of Jerusalem, it escalates greatly. Uh, Jesus cleanses the temple during that last week. He rebukes the religious leaders. And his parables, he's been telling parables throughout his ministry, but in this last week especially, his parables get increasingly direct and increasingly confrontative toward the religious leaders. And so we're going to look at one of those more confrontative parables um, in Matthew 21, verses 28 through 32. So listen now with open ears to this book that we love. What do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first, they being the chief scribes and elders of the people. The first, and Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. 
But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Almighty God, you have spoken to us through your Son. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to understand that we may not refuse your calling, that we may not ignore your voice. May we all be taught by you through your powerful word and bring our every thought captive to obeying Christ to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Immediately before telling this particular parable, um, Jesus' authority is challenged by the chief priests and the elders of the people. And rather than directly answer their question about where his authority comes from, Jesus asks a question of his own. It's something he does often in his ministry. He asks the question back to religious leaders, John the Baptist, was his baptism from God, or was John just a crazy man in the wilderness doing crazy things? In their minds, the religious leaders have already answered this question. They don't think that John the Baptist or his ministry was legitimate. But fearing a negative response from the people, they don't give any kind of answer. And so Jesus, in turn, then doesn't give them a direct answer about the source of his authority. But even without direct answers, there's really a clear line that gets drawn in this exchange. And in response to that exchange, Jesus teaches three parables that illustrate that these religious leaders have turned their backs on God. They've rejected how God has been revealing himself. So God was revealing himself first through the work of John the Baptist. And then that revealing of himself continued on into the ministry of Jesus. And to reject John, Jesus is saying here, to reject John the Baptist has led these religious leaders to also reject Jesus, which is to reject the kingdom of God. So this parable about two sons illustrates this great reversal that is taking place. Those who have seemed distant from God, the the sellouts, the traitors, the tax collectors, right? Those who are benefiting from Roman occupation. They've chosen Roman occupation over Hebrew promised land as well as the unclean, the disreputable prostitutes. They are the ones who are entering God's kingdom. Their initial opposition to God has become obedience. Well, on the other hand, those who have seemed near to God, right, the religious leaders of God's own chosen people, those folks are in danger of being excluded. Their apparent external compliance has actually, in reality, been disobedience and been rejection of God's kingdom. So there are the oppositionally obedient, there are the compliantly disobedient. Let's consider two questions in light of this text. Who am I and who are they? Who am I? Which of these two sons am I personally more like? And who are they? Who are the people that that I interact with on a daily basis? And how am I to engage with people based on how they are responding to Jesus? So first, who am I? Who am I? You will likely identify elements of both of these sons in your personality. But I'd encourage you to think about this not in terms of your personality, but really in terms of your disposition and your response to Jesus. And so for some of you here today, your response to Jesus is at present characterized by opposition or by defiance. And maybe that's always for you been your response. You've always been skeptical of Jesus. You've always been cynical about his claims. 
So Jesus says things like, come to me, you are heavy, laden, and burdened, and I will give you rest. And you say like the first son, I will not. And he says, repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And you say, I will not. And he says, die to yourself and pick up your cross and follow me. And you say, I will not. Maybe that hasn't always been your response to Jesus. Maybe that's just where you find yourself today. And a variety of things may have led to that. Intellectual difficulties and questions that you have. Uh, Life circumstances that have led you to question the goodness and the power of God. Maybe either the goodness or the power of God, or maybe both of those at the same time. Or maybe disillusionment and disappointment and burnout has been your experience as you've been part of the church or been in relationships with other people who are Christians. If that's where you find yourself, let me first say this to you. There is an honesty, there is an honesty about that response that is so good. Right? It's free from the pretense. It's free from the fakeness of pretending like you, like you say and believe these things because you think you're supposed to. There's a beauty in the honesty of that. And opposition to Jesus is not a bad place to start. So at times, if that's you, you're going to have to forgive me and people like me and other people who have been in the church for a long time because we can become so sheltered and consumed with Christian subculture that to witness honest and raw expressions of opposition to Jesus can freak us out and can lead us to really poor responses like getting defensive in the name of Jesus or getting self-righteous. So you have to forgive us if and when we respond like that because that is not how Jesus handles your opposition. That is not how he handled the opposition of the tax collectors and the prostitutes, those who were distant from the things of God, those who were distant from the people of God when he came into the world. And it's not how he handled the opposition of a particular man named Nathaniel. In the first chapter of the Gospel of John, Jesus calls four people to come and follow him. And they are four very different people in very different places in their lives. Nathaniel is one of those four. And he is a skeptic through and through. His friend Philip, who is actually the complete opposite of a cynic. uh, Philip is the guy who, like Jesus says, come and follow me. He's like, sure, I'm in. Sign up. I'm going. Not even a hesitation. Philip comes and says to Nathaniel, hey, we found him. We found the Messiah. It's Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel says in response to that, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right? He's not impressed. He's not impressed and he's skeptical. But Philip invites him to come and to see for himself. And when Nathaniel does, Jesus doesn't freak out at his skepticism, at his cynicism, at his doubt. He welcomes it. And even more than welcoming it, he actually affirms Nathaniel for that initial skeptical, oppositional demeanor. And he says to Nathaniel, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. In other words, here's a, here's a person in whom is no guile, no gullibility. He affirms Nathaniel for wanting to know the truth and not just simply taking Philip's word for it. So if you find in yourself a response to Jesus that is opposition and defiance, then see in the example of Nathaniel that Jesus is patient enough and he's powerful enough, he's able enough to meet you right where you are, right in the middle of your opposition. And as you perceive his welcome, bring your opposition to him. Don't remain distant as if you've got to figure that out on your own. Um, Don't remain apathetic 
Don't pride yourself in being a cynic or a skeptic, right? Opposition is not a bad place to start, but it is a bad place to entrench yourself. So instead, as this first son in this parable does, be willing to change your mind based on the truth that God has revealed, right? That's this reversal that plays out in the parable. The tax collectors and the sinners, they live lives of opposition to God. But at the end of the day, we see they are the ones who are willing to align themselves and align their lives with what God reveals. They saw and they changed their minds. So bring your opposition to Jesus with a sincere willingness to change your mind. Because when you do, as you do, you are very likely already on your way to entering the kingdom of God. Now for others, when considering this question, who am I? you will find yourself to be much more like the second son in this parable, compliantly disobedient. Right? You've said yes to God, which is a great place to start, but will that initial verbal compliance, will that translate into a lifestyle of faithfulness? Will it translate into a lifestyle of actually doing the will of the Father? Just so that we're always clear about this, we do not enter God's kingdom through our efforts and through our works. We enter God's kingdom by believing in the finished work of Jesus Christ. But our works, our obedience, they demonstrate that we have indeed entered God's kingdom. They demonstrate that we are indeed God's people. Without works, it actually calls into question our identity. Are we really people of God if our lives are void of faithful obedience? Throughout Scripture, one of one of God's recurring rebukes, one of God's recurring laments even about the Israelites and about the Israelite leaders is that they are people who honor me with their lips, but they are far from me in their hearts. So they are the ones who initially go to God and say, yes, I will, I go, sir. But in the end, they don't go. Is that you? Is that you? Personally, I'm a lot more like this second son than I am like the first son. And my bet is that the majority of you here in this room this morning are as well. Why do I say that? Because you're here this morning. Because you're here this morning. Because compliant people are fantastic at doing the visible external activities that good, upright, moral people do. Right? Compliant people want to be seen as compliant people. That's a given. What's not a given is whether initially compliant people will be obedient from the heart in all areas of life and not just in the ones that other people see. In Matthew 23, a couple chapters after the text we read today, Jesus will say to the religious leaders, you have neglected the weightier matters. You've neglected the weightier matters, justice and mercy and faithfulness. You are, you are those who clean the outside of the dish, but the inside is still dirty, full of greed and self-indulgence. You are like whitewashed tombs. You're clean and beautiful on the outside, but inside you're full of dead people's bones. So herein lies the danger for we who are more like the second son, and I definitely include myself in that, that we can be visibly, externally compliant people and our hearts can be far from God. Right? We can attend worship services every single Sunday, but are we actually loving God with everything that we are, with our heart, with our mind, with our soul, with our strength? We can participate in home groups and Bible studies and all other kinds of gatherings of Christians but are we actually loving one another? 
Are we actually considering one another better than ourselves? Are we outdoing one another in showing honor? Are we speaking grace and truth into the lives of other people and truly being open to them speaking grace and truth into ours? We can show up for all kinds of service opportunities and give ourselves fully to all kinds of uh, volunteer causes and good causes that are out in our region, in our world. Does that mean we're actually loving our neighbor, doing justice and loving kindness and walking humbly with our God? I've had a, uh, a handful of conversations over the past several weeks uh, about ways that we as a church are struggling to experience deep relationships and deep community with one another. And a few other conversations at the same time about uh, our church's plans for becoming more effective in how we engage with our neighbors, how we reach out in mercy, and how we reach out sharing the good news of the gospel with people. Those are great conversation topics. As you're thinking about those things, please never hesitate to come and, and let's talk about that. And they're good things to lament when we're seeing them not play out the way that we want them to. But in these conversations, I'm always going to ask you what the pursuit of this looks like in your own life. I'm always going to ask you what the pursuit of this looks like in your own life. Not because I'm lazy, um, not because I want to excuse myself for the role that, that I and other leaders in our church play to help equip you and facilitate that. I ask you that because according to Jesus, you are the plan. You are the plan. What's the church's vision for better community? You are. What's the church's vision for more effective mercy and outreach efforts? You are. And though programs and initiatives hopefully will in this church always serve to be a catalyst and, and further and facilitate those things, no church program has ever or will ever adequately replace individual Christians and then Christians in community together moving past a visible external compliance and actually being faithful and obedient to Jesus from the heart. There's no way to program that out. There's no way to outsource that to a church leadership team. It has to come from our own hearts. Just like the oppositional son must change his mind, so must the compliant son. I don't know if you picked up on that in this parable. Just like the one must change his mind, so, much, so must the other. Both must change their mind away from their initial response, whatever that response is, and turn toward obedience. So rather than being content with external compliance, honoring God with our lips while our hearts are far from him, respond to Jesus with faithful obedience. And we start by asking, who am I? Because it's really critical that we begin by wrestling through this question in our own life. Who am I before God? How am I responding to God? But then it's also important to think through, who are they? In other words, who are the people that you and I interact with? Who are the other people in this room? Who are the other people in your workplaces or your schools or your neighborhoods? And where do you see both compliance or opposition in the lives of people you interact with? And then how are we to, how we to respond with that? Central Pennsylvania uh, is a really intriguing place culturally. And I know many of you have lived here far longer than I. I've lived here only five years. Uh, so I feel like I still have a ton to, to learn on this front. But there's a really interesting blend of cultures in central Pennsylvania. On the one hand, we're definitely not New England. Okay, we're definitely not New England, but nor are we the Midwest and the Bible Belt. We're kind of an odd conglomeration of both of those things smashed together in the middle of our state. There's a cultural prevalence of Christianity. There's a lot of churches, Christian churches here in central Pennsylvania. You've probably noticed that. 
Central Pennsylvania is largely culturally and politically conservative, not exclusively, but largely. So it's much different than you would find in New England. But it's also not the norm here in our region that everybody goes to church, that everybody has a church that they name when someone asks them that where they go to church, like it is the case often in the Midwest and the South and parts of the Bible Belt. If you move to central Pennsylvania from New England, and some of you have experienced exactly that, this will feel like the friendliest place in the world to you. This will feel like the friendliest place in the world, almost in a creepy way. Like you're walking down the street and someone smiles at you, you've never seen them before. You're like, I don't know you. Wipe that smile off of your face because you're freaking me out. But if you move here from the Midwest or from the Bible Belt or from the South, this place will feel like the most cold and standoffish place you've ever lived in your life. You're like, these must be those Northeast jerks everybody talks about. (laughs) And I say all that because on any given day, all around you and I in central Pennsylvania are people with wildly different views of the world Wildly different personalities, different responses toward Jesus. So how will we engage with someone who is oppositional toward God? Who has said to God, maybe directly with their words, but if not with their words, maybe just with their lives, I will not. I will not. If you're a church person, as many of us in this room are, this might be a real struggle for you. Because this person's lifestyle might include external, overt kinds of things that aren't honoring to God. But why should we ever be surprised about that? Why should we ever be surprised about that? Why would someone live consistently with a standard that they don't affirm or believe in the first place? They have no reason to. Someone who is oppositional toward God will probably have no interest in coming to a church service or or other church activities or groups or gatherings with you. And depending on whether their personality is more Midwestern or more New England, that will either be conveyed to you as like a, like a pleasantry, like, oh, that's great that you believe that, it's just not really my thing, or people will just tell you very directly that they think you're an idiot, and they don't, want to, they don't have any interest in what you have an interest in. You will, especially if you're more like the compliant son, you will want to distance yourself from people like this. You will be tempted to make their lifestyle changes or their conversion to Jesus a prerequisite to a relationship with them. And you will likely be tempted to an initial posture of condemnation toward them, either to their face or behind their back or even just in the quiet of your own mind. This is how the religious leaders of the first century perceived and interacted with tax collectors and prostitutes. But that's not Jesus' posture. Though Jesus is the judge, though though all sin is primarily an offense against him and the world that he created as perfect, his posture was not one of condemnation and distance. His posture was one of compassion and nearness. And so much compassion and nearness and so little distance and so little condemnation that actually he was accused of participating in the same things that the tax collectors and sinners were part of. He was accused of being a drunkard and a glutton because he spent so much time around them. Those men and women who are oppositional to Jesus, they don't need your condemnation. They need a persistent presence in their lives to serve as a flesh and blood invitation to come and see. To come and to perceive the kingdom of God so that they might change their minds, even especially if it looks like they never will. Last summer, a podcast called Invisibilia 
uh, did a story about a little town in Denmark. Back in 2012, ISIS, a terrorist group ISIS, put out a call to Muslims throughout Europe to come and help build the Islamic State. And 34 people from this small town in Denmark left to go to Syria and join ISIS. Uh, As this was happening elsewhere in Europe, different nations and different cities responded very harshly to those who were leaving for Syria. But this Danish town uh, took a very different approach. To quote from the story from the podcast, they made it clear to citizens of Denmark who had traveled to Syria that they were welcome to come home and that when they did, they would receive help with going back to school, finding an apartment, meeting with a psychiatrist or a mentor, or whatever they needed to fully integrate back into society. Scandalous, isn't it? That people who leave your nation to go join a terrorist group would be offered that kind of welcome back. But it's been effective, according to the podcast, of those 34 people who left in 2012, six of them died fighting for ISIS in Syria, 10 of them, as far as they know, are still there. 18 of them have returned. 18 of the 34 came back. And since 2012, fewer have left to go to Syria. In 2015, only one person left, even as those numbers escalated across other nations and cities in Europe. Commenting on this, one social psychologist from the University of Maryland highlighted just how powerful the the shock and the scandal of this was. And this sociologist said, these men expect to be treated harshly, but instead they get the opposite. They expect to be treated harshly, and instead they get the opposite. Now, the analogy is not perfect, and think what you will about the politics of all of that. If this sounds familiar, it is because it is an echo of the gospel. This is how Jesus treats sinners. This is how Jesus treats me. And you, people who are oppositional and defiant toward God, we expect in our opposition to be met by God with condemnation. We expect to be met by God's people with condemnation. But instead, Jesus welcomes us with grace. And he calls us to change our minds. So likewise, as Jesus' followers, be a persistent presence in the lives of those who are currently opposed to him. Right, serve as this flesh and blood invitation that says, come and see and change your mind. Now, what about our response toward the compliantly disobedient? What about our response toward the one who initially says yes to God, but then doesn't go? As much as this was, it was once the norm, at least in the American church, for moral religious people to condemn broken sinful people, in some ways today, that's actually feels like it's switched. And now like the witch hunt is on for the Pharisee types in our churches to single them out and condemn them. It is necessary to call out compliant, moral-looking disobedience. It is necessary to call out hypocrisy and to call out inconsistency. And when we read the gospel narratives, Jesus saves his harshest and most offensive words for those who look like they are following God externally, but who are inwardly far from God in their hearts. But just as you must not give up on the oppositional, don't give up on the nice church folks who seem hypocritical or shallow or judgmental or whatever else they seem to you. Don't give up on them either. Don't become pharisaical in your posture toward Pharisee types. 
Don't become a graceless champion of the grace of God. Think of it this way. Compliance that doesn't translate into a lifestyle of obedience. That's just another form of opposition to God. It just doesn't look like it. It's just not as apparent that it's opposition to God. It's often not apparent to other people. Most of the time, it's even less apparent to the person himself or herself, which makes it so much more deceitful and puts those compliantly disobedient men and women in an incredibly precarious place. So if it's going to take patience and grace to walk with someone who is defiant and oppositional to Jesus, it will take at least as much patience and grace to walk with someone who is externally compliant but far from God in their heart. Because now, my persistent presence in their life is going to have to first convince them of what's wrong, not with their immorality, but with the motives of their morality. It's going to have to first convince them that they don't have a corner on the market with God. It's going to have to first convince them that they are in a precarious, deceived place because they've forgotten or maybe never have perceived the grace that they themselves are in need of, not just once, but every single moment of their lives. Both the first son and the second son in this parable must change their minds. Only the initially initially oppositional son does. And that's because in many ways it is harder for compliant people to truly change their minds. So will you have compassion for both the oppositional and the compliant? Will you see that opposition and external compliance are really just two different types of lostness, two different types of rejection of God, and that the only hope that any of us has is to receive the mercy of God by trusting in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus draws the oppositional and he upends the compliant, all so that regardless of our initial response, regardless of our specific type of lostness, we might actually turn toward God and receive his mercy and enter his kingdom. So who are you? Who are you? In your opposition or in your compliance, perceive the coming of the kingdom of God. Look to and believe in Jesus and enter in. And may many others enter in with you. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. We confess, Jesus, that rather than turn toward you and receive your mercy, we would rather entrench ourselves in the posture of one of these two sons. We would rather stay oppositional and defiant and not really be open to changing our minds. Or we'd rather pay lip service to you, look externally compliant, and be far from you in our hearts. We need your mercy. And Jesus, we are grateful that whatever our form, our opposition to you takes, that you welcome us back, that we rebel against you, that you welcome us back, that you don't meet us with the condemnation we deserve, but you open your arms to us in grace. And we get to come now to this table And we get to see in tangible form the grace that you hold out to us. So I pray for all the men and women in this room, in our hearts, that your Holy Spirit would do deep work, that we we would see and perceive the goodness of your kingdom and the beauty of what you have accomplished for us through your death and resurrection, that we would come, 
that we would turn from our opposition, we would turn from our external compliance, we would enter into your kingdom by trusting in you, Jesus. Change our minds, change our hearts, and make us those who respond with faithfulness from the deep places of our heart. Pray that in your name.